Are you curious about continuous glucose monitors, or have you ever thought about measuring your ketones? Today, we're talking about exactly that, when to measure, why to measure, how to measure, and when to skip it. My name is Julie Sad, health coach for women with ADHD, and my guest today is a true expert in functional health. I'm joined by Andrea Nicholson, and Andrea is board certified in holistic nutrition. She helps her clients reduce inflammation, optimize their weight, and repair their gut health by identifying and targeting the underlying imbalances in their bodies. And she's going to help us navigate the sometimes confusing world of glucose and ketone tracking so that we can figure out if this is something that we want to do for ourselves and how to do it. So Andrea, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. Me too, for sure. And so you have a really interesting background. Um, can you tell our audience what you used to do before you got into healthcare? Yeah, I was actually a crime scene investigator and forensic investigator. So I worked crime scenes. I analyzed fingerprints. I was also the supervisor of the lab. So I had a very busy career in forensic science. Okay. So this is something I know nothing about. So I've got to ask, is it like it is in the movies? No. No. Um, which I think you would probably hear from everybody who's ever had a TV show or a movie made about their industry. You know, it's not the same in medicine or, you know, any of the TV shows, they're just not accurate because they're trying to entertain you and real life is not necessarily for entertainment. So no, it's very different. Obviously there's some, some reality things included in those TV shows and movies, but no, it's very different. Okay. Would you say it's like more methodical or, or what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely much more, you know, scientific and structured, you know, you never see anybody write a report on TV or in the movies, yeah. you never see kind of all those behind the scenes things that actually make up a big chunk of what people actually need to do in those fields. Same thing is true in medicine, same thing is true in lots of fields, they, they that would be a boring TV show to sit and watch somebody write a report. So uh -huh. there's so many things like that, that they just don't show. And of course, it always goes way faster on TV than it does in reality as well. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, okay. Interesting. I've always had that question. <laughs> I'm glad to find someone that knows the answer. <laughs> um, so then how on earth did you go from investigating crime scenes to helping people with their health? Yeah, I was on my own health journey when I had that career and was looking to lose some weight and reverse some health conditions that had been found through some testing that I did. I had arterial plaques already forming and arterial wall thickening and I had insulin resistance and digestive issues and like a whole slew of things that I was working on and conventional medicine and common advice just wasn't working for me. It seemed like the cleaner I made my diet and the more I worked out and the more I, you know, leaned into plant-based and whole grains and all the things I got sicker and sicker and it just wasn't working for me. And so I finally started treating my own journey like an investigator. And I really investigated what was really going on. I dug into the literature. I talked to a lot of different experts from a lot of different fields. I talked to other people who were on similar journeys or who had already done things I wanted to do. And I really just conducted my own investigation. And through that process, I was able to figure out where I was going wrong, what I was doing wrong, what I needed to be doing instead, and how to actually get there. And so through that process, I obviously fell in love with um, helping people do just that to find more natural ways to sometimes buck what they've been told and do it their own way and be their own advocate. So an interesting question I have about this is how did you feel when, you know, when you did your investigation and you figured out kind of what was going on? Um, did you feel relief? Did you feel angry? Did you feel sad? How did you feel? Yeah, I would say all of the above. 
I was, you know, obviously happy that it was finally working and that I was getting some answers and I knew exactly why some of the other things hadn't worked. And yet I was also really frustrated because I wasted years doing the wrong things and following the wrong advice and following the common advice that probably a lot of us have been told. And it only made me worse. And so it really frustrated me to know that I wasted so much time and so much money and all the things that really were never designed to make me better anyway. They were designed to keep me as a lifelong customer. Yeah, that's true. And it's one thing if you, if you just don't care, you're just doing whatever, but it's another thing if you're actually trying and doing things that you think are supposed to help you and they are making you worse. So I totally understand this idea of being relieved, but also angry and frustrated. Yeah, I hear you <laughs> for sure. Um, and so let's see. So what I want to focus on today is, um, tracking glucose and ketones. So first of all, if you were explaining this to somebody, you know, why glucose, why ketones, if somebody that didn't really know what either of those things really meant, how would you explain the difference between glucose and ketones? Yeah. First of all, I would say glucose is one that more people have become aware of, and maybe not by that term, but most of us have heard of blood sugar. We're familiar with that term and kind of loosely what that means in the body. And glucose is the specific sugar that does float around in our body. So there's obviously lots of different kinds of sugars in nature. There's lots of different, you know, produced sugars in our food supply, but they all basically break down into their smallest component. One of which is glucose. That's the most common one. That's what most of our cells run on. It's what our mitochondria, you may remember from back in biology class back in the day, that's our little powerhouse that's producing ATP or cellular energy. And so most of us are familiar, at least loosely with blood sugar or glucose. And those are the same thing. Um, as far as glucose in the blood, that would be blood glucose or blood sugar. Ketones is one that is becoming more commonly known, but still is a little bit unknown. And ketones are actually water soluble products that are made from fats. And these can be dietary fats or from uh, stored fats in our body. And they're produced in the liver because they can transport transport through the blood unassisted. They don't need a carrier protein. They don't need you know, any of these other molecules to get them through the blood. Usually fat molecules can't just freely float in the blood because the blood is mostly water. Fat is mostly oil. And we know water and oil don't mix very well. So Traditionally, fats require some kind of carrier protein or some kind of vehicle to carry them around, but ketones are water soluble. So they can just transport themselves through the blood and they can work to produce energy in a slightly different way than glucose does. And so it's kind of like looking at, you know, if you're looking at a wood burning stove, glucose would be like newspaper that would burn up really, really fast, but it would do the job. It would create the fire, it would generate the heat, it would do all the things. And then ketones would be more like that really big, thick, healthy log that's just going to burn for a long, long time. Now, they're a little bit different in the sense that ketones are actually also a cleaner fuel too. They produce less free radicals and less damaging products, but they're basically just two different forms of energy that the body can produce. Oh, okay. Got it. Good. I think that's a, a much better explanation than I could have done. Um, and I love the analogy of newspaper versus, you know, versus a log. <laughs> so, so great. Um, so, so we need glucose. Do we need ketones to survive? We don't need ketones, mm -hmm. but it is an alternate source that we can use to survive either when we're in a 
low glucose state. So either at like a ketogenic diet, or if we're in a fasted state where we're kind of surviving on our stored fuels instead of food that we're taking in. And so we don't necessarily need ketones. Like you can go through your whole life burning nothing but basically glucose, but they do provide that added energy between meals or when you do have to fast for say surgery or, you know, any kind of maybe not voluntary fast, they, they kind of keep you, keep you going and give your cells all the energy that they need. And so, um, and what about glucose? So it's, I know it's required. Do we have to eat it? We don't have to eat it. We do need it for some cells. The vast majority of our cells can actually use ketones, fatty acids, glucose, lots of different fuel sources. There's a couple of different kinds of cells that like our red blood cells that don't have mitochondria. So they have to rely on glucose. But for the most part, most of our cells, any cell that has mitochondria can also use fatty acids or ketones for energy instead. But we, when we do need that glucose or we need quick acting energy, we can actually make it in our bodies out of a lot of different substrates. We can break down certain amino acids and make glucose. We can break down components of our stored fatty acids and make glucose. And we also store long chains of glucose as glycogen, and we can break those apart and release extra glucose as well. So we have lots of different mechanisms to create our own glucose, even if we're not eating any. Okay, perfect. So there are two different fuel sources basically. So why should we measure them? I mean, why let's start with glucose. Why should we measure our glucose? Yeah, this is a big topic because I think so many people don't know that they have issues here. Most of us would know if we were hypoglycemic, meaning we had low blood sugar, because that's what you typically think of as people who have, you know, they get shaky or they get weak or they, you know, their brain stops working really well, or they get hangry or they get irritable if they don't eat. That's the typical signs of hypoglycemia or having too low of blood sugar, but there is no overt symptom of having high blood sugar. The only way you would know is if you test. And that could either be done with a glucometer or some kind of test machine that you use at home or through regular blood work that you like your doctor would run. That's the only way you would know. There's no overt symptom of high blood sugar, but high blood sugar is very toxic to the body. It's toxic to the arteries and the blood vessels and all of the systems there. And it also then leads sugar that can stick to all of your proteins and enzymes and hormones and cell receptors. And it can just kind of gum up everything. And so we definitely don't want high blood sugars, but you would only know if you're testing. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And I've heard the, the analogy use, it's almost like, um, barbecue sauce. Like when you have all the sugar in your body, it's like, it's like when you put barbecue sauce on meat and then you cook it and it, you know, gets kind of crunchy. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, what, it gets crystallized and that's exactly what happens to your tissues. If you have high blood sugars. Yeah. Which is not pleasant to think about <laughs> for sure. Oh my gosh. And so, so how does a person go about measuring their glucose? Yeah. So the two most common ways are that traditional blood testing that you would run with your doctor. That's a common marker that's included is a glucose measurement. Typically that's done in a fasted state. That's why they ask you not to eat before you come in to, to test your blood sugar and all of your other markers, because if you eat, then your blood sugar is going to go up. How much depends on what you ate. And so then it becomes a little bit less reliable because it's so much dependent on what you just ate. So they want you in a fasted state for the most part. That's the most valuable reading when it comes to glucose. But you can also do this at home with a simple glucometer. 
And this is just a finger prick device that you just prick your finger, get a little drop of blood. It tests it on a small strip and that gives you what your blood sugar is in the moment. Um, and then thirdly would be a continuous glucose monitor, which is my absolute favorite way to monitor. It's a little device you wear generally on the arm. There's also one that goes on the belly. There's two different primary manufacturers. Um, most people use the one on the arm unless they're maybe type one diabetic or those kinds of things. Dexcoms are more common in that population. Um, but these measure 24 seven for two full weeks. And so this gives you real time feedback of exactly what your body's doing based on certain foods you've eaten, certain activities you've done, you know, even sleep and stress and hydration and all of these other factors also play in. And so that gives you real time feedback in the moment about how your body is reacting to all of these things. Okay. Wow. And so are there specific numbers that people should be looking for? Yeah. Generally when you're looking at a fasted state in the United States, we use milligrams per deciliter In lots of other countries, they use millimoles per liter, but in the milligrams per deciliter level, we would generally be looking for 70 to 90 milligrams per deciliter in that fasted state. Of course, that's going to vary if you've eaten. And so depending on what you've eaten and how long after those numbers will fluctuate and there's different targets with that as well. But generally that fasted number is the one that we're really honed in on. And that 70 to 90 is the sweet spot. Okay. Got it. Um, have you ever had any surprises? I've heard stories about people saying like, oh, I ate yogurt and I didn't think yogurt was going to give me this big spike or anything. Have you ever heard any similar stories? Yeah, I think a lot of people are really shocked by some of the foods that they've considered to be incredibly healthy their whole lives. Like oatmeal is one of the biggest ones that I hear. That's a very common breakfast. Most people consider it a very healthy breakfast, you know, high fiber, whole grain, all the things. It's got extra fruits in it a lot of times. And people are shocked at how high their blood sugars go when they have oatmeal. And that doesn't even matter if it's instant or thick rolled oats or even steel cut oats. Most people, I've yet to actually see one that didn't go higher than anticipated or higher than ideal. And so oatmeal is one that I think is, is a big surprise for a lot of people. I think just fruit in general is really surprising to a lot of people how high it goes, especially if you eat fruit by itself without a protein or a fat or, you know, a meal with it. And so I think those are really common. Some of the vegetables can be really common. And then the last one I'll say is a lot of people, you know, have transitioned to like a gluten-free diet because they've heard how many you know horrible things can happen with gluten. And so they're switching out all these gluten-free alternatives and gluten-free breads and bagels and pastas and all these things. And they're shocked at how high their blood sugar goes. And if you understand what that is, then you understand that gluten-free has nothing to do with blood sugar. Gluten is a protein found in wheat products. And so switching to an alternative is just a different either grain or starch or, you know, whatever product they're making it out of, but that doesn't necessarily lower the carb count. It doesn't necessarily have any impact at all on the blood sugar piece. It might be better from a gluten standpoint, but it doesn't necessarily make any impact on the blood sugar piece. And so I think a lot of times people perceive that they're doing all these great healthy things and maybe it is fixing one thing, but it might be making something else worse. And so this is one area where I think just a lot of people don't know. And it's fascinating. How many times do we hear, oh yeah, oatmeal is so good for you, fruit, and even vegetables. I'm surprised that vegetables made the list. Are there any yeah. specific vegetables that you found um, cause higher glu uh, glucose spikes? 
Yeah. Obviously the more starchy things, a lot of the stuff that grows underground. So any of the root vegetables, potatoes, sweet potatoes, um, beets, those kinds of things, carrots, peas, a lot of those are higher sugar content. Mm -hmm. And so they, they generally promote a bigger spike than some of the lower starch vegetables, like the leafy greens and some of those things. doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat these foods. I think this is a big distinction that a lot of people need to recognize. When you see a big blood sugar spike, it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be off your list and you never touch it again. It might, if this is a highly processed, you know, junk food, fast food, convenience food, yeah, there's probably no nutritional value there anyway. So eliminating that's probably a good thing regardless of the blood sugar spike. But if it's a good, healthy, natural food and you love it, then keep playing with it. Keep trying different combinations, different portion sizes, eating your in a different order can make a big difference. Sometimes there's lots of different things you can play with to see if you can't mitigate that spike a little bit. So adding more fat can make a big difference. Adding more protein can make a big difference. Having these starchier, sweeter, bigger blood sugar spiking foods earlier in the day when you're more insulin sensitive and more likely to burn it off because you're more active during the day. If you have a big bowl of oatmeal at dinner, it's going to have a very different response than a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast. And so there's all these different things that we can play with to try to bring down that spike from even happening. And a lot of that is food combinations, um, timing of food, portion sizes, all of these kinds of things really make a big difference. Oh, cool. That is fascinating. So even just by changing the time, you might <laughs> avoid that ugly looking graph that you were trying to yeah. avoid. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, and so, so what is the goal? Like, uh, I'm going to ask the question in a dumb way. Am I supposed to make my glucose be zero? <laughs> like, like, am I trying to get it as low as possible? Or am I trying to go for that range that you mentioned? Yeah, there's definitely a sweet spot. So both too low and too high of blood sugar is problematic. Like we talked about earlier, hypoglycemia is that low blood sugar. And you'll generally feel that if you have blood sugar, that's too low, your whole body just kind of doesn't work well if you don't have adequate blood sugar, we do need a certain level. So we're definitely not aiming for zero. We're definitely not aiming for no blood sugar, but we don't want high either. So we do want to be kind of in that sweet spot throughout the day, depending on, you know, time of day, it's going to fluctuate. We're not going for a flat line here. Flat lines are generally not good in medicine in any spectrum. You don't want a flat line brain wave. You don't want a flat line heart rate. We don't ever want flat lines, but we don't want huge swings either. We don't want it to go too high or too low really throughout the day at all. We want to kind of stay within a nice, healthy range throughout the day. And so when it comes to blood sugar, obviously that 70 to 90 is going to be ideal when you're in a fasted state. And then generally what we would want to do, this is where continuous glucose monitor is so valuable because you're getting the, the readings all the time. You want to look at what your number was before you eat say it was 90. And then after, you know, you're going to eat, you're going to see how high it goes. What was the maximum of the peak? Say it went to 130. So that's a spike of 40 from 90 to 130. That's a spike of 40. That's a little bit higher than I would like. Generally, I like the spike to stay less than 30 if possible. Um, but say it goes up to 130 within like two to three hours, you want that back down to 90. If it's still staying high and you're still at like 110, you know, four hours later, then that would indicate some level of insulin resistance that your body's just not responding to handle that high blood sugar anymore. And so you either need a lot more insulin than your body is producing, or your body's not responding to the insulin that it is producing. And that's where extra blood work can be really helpful to see where your insulin level is at. 
There is no home test for that. There's no finger prick. There's no way to test your insulin at home. It has to be done with blood work in a lab. Um, there's also some salivary tests and some other things, but traditionally this is a blood, a, a blood test in a fasted state. Again, this is, if you wanted to ask for this from your doctor, this would be fasting insulin. It would be a fasting insulin. Oh. Yeah. And unfortunately a lot of doctors won't run it. A lot of insurance companies won't cover it. It's actually a pretty cheap test. So if that's the case for you, if your doctor won't run it, there's lots of ways you can either run it for yourself or you can find someone like me or someone in the more holistic functional medicine side that will run this for you. It's not a very expensive test. Okay, perfect. So we know where to go <laughs> to get this test. Um, great. So let's see. Um, let's see. Can you tell me any success stories that you can think of when it comes to glucose monitoring? Yeah, I think the awareness is just such a valuable piece of this because there's really no other way to get this level of real-time feedback. You can kind of get it a little bit with, you know, fitness trackers and wearable devices. You can sort of see how that real-time feedback throughout the day is really helpful. You know, how active have you been? What's your heart rate doing? Like all of these things are really insightful because then you can pay attention to what led up to that. So if it's a number that you're like, whoa, I don't like that number. Okay, what have I been doing? What have I been eating? How did I sleep? What did I eat? What did I drink? What did I do? Was there a stressful event? Like you can really start to analyze all of the things that led up to whatever that value was. Same thing applies here with especially continuous glucose monitors. You can see in real time how specific foods are reacting. How quickly did you react? How long did it last? Did you plummet too low? You know, if you started at 90 and two hours later you're at 60, you had a little too much of a reaction and maybe you have some reactive hypoglycemia going on. So there's all these things that we can now investigate and we can pair them back to specific actions we took or didn't take. Uh -huh. Did you go for a walk? Did you have a stressful event? You know, all of these things. And we can start to figure out what does and does not work for us because it's going to be individual. There are no, there are a few, but for the most part, there are no hard and fast rules that are going to apply to everybody. Wow. wow. So it really is like being an investigator. Now I, I can see the connection. <laughs> um, great. So, I mean, it sounds pretty cool. I'm sold. So is there any reason not to do this or any person who shouldn't be doing this? You know, for the most part, I think everyone can do this and can benefit from it. The only people I would use a little caution with are the people who tend to become hyper-focused on the metrics and kind of drive themselves nuts with the data. So if you're one of those people that you've gotten a fitness tracker or some other device like that, and you're checking it 10,000 times a day, and you're obsessively micromanaging every little thing about your life because of whatever the number said, and you're chasing perfect numbers and you know you don't ever want to step out even by one point, this is probably not the thing for you okay. if that's you. So be mm -hmm. honest with yourself and just don't torture yourself with something like this. But if you're someone who really wants to understand your body so that you can make changes to your diet, to your exercise, to your lifestyle, to your routines, to your mindset, this is tremendously valuable data. So I, I don't think there's any like condition who shouldn't do it. It's really more of that mindset. If you're going to become super hyper-focused hyper and drive yourself nuts, then this probably isn't for you. It's never a good thing to trade you know, an unhealthy habit for an obsessive habit. So if that's you, then maybe don't start here. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, okay. We talked about glucose. Now let's talk about ketones. So what are some ways to measure this other fuel source ketones? 
Yeah, for the most part, this is going to be done with, again, a finger stick. There are some breath units and there are some urine strips you can also do. They tend to not be as reliable for as long. Urine strips tend to be more reliable on the very front end when you're first trying to kind of build your own ketones and assess where you're at. But eventually your body becomes really efficient at using them. And then all of a sudden your strips will be negative. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're not actually making ketones. It just means you're using them. And so they become a little bit less helpful. And some of the breath meters, they're getting better. Um, for a long time, they really sort of the same thing. They weren't all that great. You mostly produce acetone, and that's what a lot of them are testing. Some of the newer ones are getting better. So I think this is an emerging technology that will probably keep getting better, that they're looking for different metabolites and things rather than specifically looking at ketones. I think the breath meters will get better. Um, but the most common way and the most reliable as of now is a ketone meter. It works just like a, a glucose meter that you would do finger stick, a little drop of blood goes on a strip, and then the machine reads it for you. Um, and that's the most common way that people who are looking to get into some level of ketosis, that's the test that they most often will use. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. Okay. So this is a, you know, if, if I want to be in ketosis and I want to see what my ketone levels are, um, do you have specific numbers that you choose to use as a goal? Yeah, for the most part, for just general health benefits and energy production sorts of things, really the, the kind of standard level is anything over 0.5 millimoles per liter is considered nutritional ketosis. So your body is producing some level of ketones and that's kind of the minimum. The other caveat I will say is the higher the ketone number isn't necessarily better. So there's no benefit really in chasing high levels of ketones. That doesn't mean you're healing faster or losing weight faster or burning fat faster. It really chasing ketones is just not helpful. So as long as you're above that 0.5, for the most part, you're doing well. Now, some people will feel different when they get up to like, say 1.5 or two, or maybe even towards the threes beyond that. No, people generally don't feel much and it's really not, you know, doing any extra benefit for the most part. There are a few conditions like epilepsy and there's, there's some emerging research on some mental health disorders, some really serious mental health disorders that do really well at much higher levels of ketosis, but you really need to do those kinds of levels of ketosis with a practitioner that knows what they're doing. Cause you're probably also on other medications and there's a lot of safety considerations that you need to work with. If you're on any kind of medications for anything, any condition, diabetes, epilepsy, mental health, anything, you really do need to work with someone just to make sure that you can make those changes to your medications because some of them can become quite deadly as your body starts transitioning into ketosis if you don't know how to make those changes. And so you do want to make sure that you know any medications that you're on, what the reactions might be, and so that your provider can help adjust those as needed. Yeah, definitely. Especially the psych uh, psychotropic medications, they can, they can become kind of stronger in the body. So you never want to DIY your meds. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Same thing with diabetes and hypertension drugs. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, don't try to DIY changing your meds. Always make sure you're talking to your prescriber because as your body changes and your diet changes, you very, very likely will probably, you know, need a different dose of your medication or be able to stop it in some cases. Um, so let's see. So, so, so there are different numbers. There's nutritional ketosis. And then for other conditions, um, neurological or mental health, sometimes it's higher. And I've heard all kinds of conflicting information on that. So I think that there's still a lot more research that needs to be done for many of those, but yeah, for nutritional ketosis, I've also heard 0.5 
Billy Mold. Um, what do you think? Do you in general tell your clients, you know, you have to always be in ketosis or can you go in and out of it? What's the general guideline? Yeah, this is another area that there's still a lot of research to be done. I don't think we have super solid, great data on either side of the fence here. And so there are a lot of people saying that you should not stay in ketosis forever. And there's a lot of people saying that, you know, you can cycle in and out, but you don't have to. And so I don't think there's any real solid data to tell us one way or the other, if we really have to go one way or the other. Obviously, I think it's safer to err on the side of caution and just cycle in and out once in a while. I know one of the main reasons why people say that we shouldn't be in ketosis forever is they claim that we become a little bit physiological. We end up with a little bit of physiological insulin resistance, which is actually a little bit of a misnomer in talking to a lot of the metabolic scientists and researchers who do look at these things. They're not actually describing true physiological insulin resistance. What they're describing is in a normal insulin response, our bodies keep a little bit of insulin kind of on hand so that it can respond really quickly. And so we get this little rise in insulin and then the body perceives whatever you ate and it produces the rest of it. So we get this biphasic response of insulin. And if you're in ketosis all the time, you don't need a whole lot of insulin and the body is very efficient at what it does. And so if you don't need that insulin, it's not going to keep storing it forever. And so it breaks down that preformed pool of insulin and you just don't have that. So rather than getting the first spike and then the bigger spike, you kind of get a flat line and then the second spike, which in your case would be the first spike because you don't have that preformed pool. And so it looks like you're insulin resistant because it took a long time for your body to respond, but it's really only because you just don't have that store to release, you know, right when you're thinking about food or when you first start eating, but after just even a day or two of eating higher carb foods or things that require more insulin, you build those stores right back up. So you really aren't insulin resistant at all. You're actually very insulin sensitive when you're using very little of it. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. And I think a lot of people point to that as the reason why we shouldn't stay in ketosis all the time, but it's not really an accurate premise. And so I don't think we have anything beyond that yet. But I don't think there's any necessarily harm in stepping back out once in a while, you know, have a day where maybe you eat some higher carb foods or, you know, you just once in a while do those things. I don't think there's any harm in that with the exception, again, being of epilepsy, those serious mental health disorders. You know, if you're on a medical ketogenic diet, that's a completely different scenario, but that would also be why I would point to what's the risk in being in ketosis all the time. Then there's people who have epilepsy, who've been on ketogenic diets for decades they don't have any side effects. They don't have it's any problems true. and they're in deep ketosis. So I think for the most part, those of us in nutritional ketosis, I mean, we're nowhere near those levels and it's not harming them any. So I don't think we know for sure yet, but I don't think we have any solid evidence that says we shouldn't either. Mm. Okay. It's good. To, it's good to know. Yeah. Cause some people say, oh, this is such an extreme thing. And how can you do this? It's going to make you be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant to that and the other. And it's good to hear that that's not necessarily true. <laughs> um, so let's see, um, is there such a thing as a continuous ketone monitor? There isn't yet. They okay. are in development, working on them, hoping mm. that they can develop such a thing. Um, they're also working on similar things for insulin to have some kind of more readily available way to test insulin without having to go get blood drawn every time. Um, but nothing is in the market quite yet, but hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll have more data on that kind of thing. Oh, that would be fun. So we could test everything all the time. <laughs> right. 
Um, so in that case, since we don't have a continuous ketone monitor, um, when do you recommend people test in the morning in the afternoon before eating after eating? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to look at ketone testing specifically. Often we do both together. So if you're going to use a ketone meter, like a keto mojo or those kinds of things, you're going to do both glucose and ketones together. So there's a couple of key times that, um, most people find the best value first is in the morning when you're still in that fasted state, you just want to make sure you don't do it too quickly upon waking because you'll have what's known as Dawn effect happening. This is where your body naturally releases more cortisol and therefore blood sugar rises just to get you going in the morning. It's what wakes you up. It boosts your body temperature. It gives you energy to get moving after you've been fasting all night. And that's what gets you going. But if you test right away, you might panic that you have really high blood sugar. And that's not really what's going on. This is a totally normal thing that we all have. How high it's going is a variable thing, you know, depending on your health conditions and all of that, but it's normal to be higher first thing in the morning. And your ketones will probably be their lowest all day as well, because your blood sugar went up. And so you're in that kind of sugar burning mode instead of the fat burning mode. And so your ketones will be down just naturally because the blood sugar is up. So wait about an hour, don't eat or drink anything but water, you know, and then test, don't do exercise, that kind of thing before you test. And you can get a good feel for what your typical fasting blood sugar would look like. And that kind of matches what you would think if you go to the lab to have blood drawn, you're not going to roll out of bed and have the blood drawn. You're going to have to get up, get dressed, get ready, drive to the lab, wait for your appointment. You know, it's going to be like an hour at least before they do that draw. So that's much more in line with that kind of testing anyway. So test those, you know, an hour or so after getting up. And then beyond that, it kind of depends on your goals. Do you want to know how a particular food is reacting? Do you want to know, you know, how quickly you respond those kinds of things? A lot of people will look at testing right before they eat. And then maybe an hour later, maybe three hours later, like you just kind of get to decide how often you want to test and exactly what intervals with the finger sticks. It's a little bit harder to know for sure. You don't know that your blood sugar is going to spike to its highest at an hour. It could take two hours. It could take 30 minutes. It, you know, it just, you don't know you're kind of guessing, but that's sort of the standard interval interval would be before an hour after, and then three hours after. And that kind of gives you that general curve. But again, you may miss the absolute peak. You may miss, you know, if it did drop low and come back up, you, you won't get all those little nuances because you're only getting a snapshot in time at that moment that you got the blood drop. So again, that's where the CGMs are so valuable because you get that entire curve without having to manually, you know, do anything to get that reading. Oh, that's true. That's true. So you're not trying to, did I, did it get the peak now? Did it get it now? Did it get, that's, yeah, could it could get real expensive that. if you get hyper-focused on testing all the time with a finger stick. I could, I could see myself doing Luckily, I don't like doing the finger stick because I have a keto mojo meter. And the, the only thing that prevented me from blowing through all the strips in one day is that I didn't like taking my blood right. so frequently. Yeah. So that saved me. <laughs> Otherwise, I think I probably would have tested it every three minutes because it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Is there anything that can throw off a ketone reading? Uh, as far as I know, there isn't really anything that would like interfere with it, but certainly anytime your blood sugar is coming up based on what you've eaten, any stress loads, if you didn't sleep very well, and that's kind of an underlying stressor on the body, you know, all of these things can play in caffeine can affect your blood sugar. Anything that affects cortisol can affect your blood sugar. There's all these factors that play in. And anytime your blood sugar is going up, your ketones will come down. 
And generally the opposite is true as well. As your blood sugar comes back down into that ideal range, then your body will start relying more on fat. And so your ketones will go up. So that's kind of generally how they work. Okay. Got it. And so is there any reason not to test ketones? You know, I would say the same thing as earlier. If you're one of those hyper-focused, you know, obsessive kind of people that you're going to, like you said, you're going to want to test every 30 seconds and you're going to know all the things it's going to get really expensive. Your fingers are going to hate you and Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to learn as much as you think you will. And so I wouldn't recommend going down that path then. Um, I think it does a little bit have some diminishing returns. You know, eventually you get to the point where you're like, well, I, I know what my number is going to say. Cause I ate this exact same meal yesterday or like, you know, eventually you've kind of figured out all the things you want to figure out. Same thing is true with the CGM. Once you've tested all the foods and all the activities and all the things you want to know about, you don't really learn anything necessarily ongoing if you keep wearing one forever. So I think they all have a tremendous place. It just really depends on the goal on, you know, what you're looking to learn from it, what problem you're trying to solve with it. I think there's a lot of pros and cons to all of them and finding the right tool based on your goal, your price point, all of these things also plays in. Mm -hmm. Well, that um, brings up an interesting point, which is that, you know, I work with a lot of people with ADHD and sometimes we have this tendency to do something, get really, really into it for a couple of weeks, maybe a month and then, okay. Next thing. (laughs) Um, And so what you're saying is I don't, if I want to do this testing, I don't have to do it every day until I die. Correct. And you really don't want to, I mean, even like keto mojo as a company will tell you that they Mm -hmm. don't want you to use their product forever, which is shocking in the world of commercial products. They actually don't, they want you to get as much information as you possibly can glean from it gather all the data about all the foods you eat, all the different activities, the different times of day, different things that you can do to change your blood sugar numbers, and then go about your life. You don't need to keep checking forever. Now, of course, if you have type one diabetes and some of these other conditions, you will probably need to monitor for the rest of your life because it's life-saving to do so. For the rest of us that don't need to test to survive, then you can just either spot check once in a while You can, you know, check in once in a while, but once you've kind of learned all the things you want to learn, you don't need to keep using these tools. Okay. Got it. So get, get the basic picture and then you can move on with your life. Cool. (laughs) Um, where can I get all these things like a keto mojo or can I, can I buy them in a pharmacy or what's the deal? Keto Mojo, as far as I know, is pretty much only online. There's lots of different resellers and affiliates and, you know, health coaches, nutritionists, functional medicine doctors, lots of providers also offer them um, so that you can just order online either through a practitioner. If you want them to help you interpret the data and make sense of it, that can often be really helpful. If you feel like you've got a solid grasp on what all the numbers mean and what to do about it and when to test and all the nuances, then you can just order it on your own. Um, but primarily that one's all online. If you just want a basic glucometer, if you just want to be able to test your blood sugar and you don't necessarily want the ketone piece of it, or maybe you're just going to start with blood sugar. A lot of times you can just buy that at your local pharmacy and they typically don't require a prescription for those. And so you can just buy the machine and the test strips right at your local pharmacy. Of course, that's going to vary a little bit, you know, location to location, but it's at least worth checking out first. And you can also order those online a lot of times. Okay, great. And have you, um, have you come across anybody being able to get reimbursed by their insurance for any of these things? 
You know, it really depends a lot on your insurance as well as you. Um, if you have a diagnosis, if you have type one or type two diabetes or these kinds of things, you will probably have a better shot at getting things like that reimbursed. Um, generally speaking, without a diagnosis, insurance isn't really interested in contributing. And so it's less likely that that will work, but it never hurts to ask. Mm -hmm. okay. And a lot of times you can use health savings accounts or flexible savings accounts for these kinds of things. So if you do have those, it's not covered by insurance, but you've got the money set aside already anyway. Oh, perfect. Oh, okay, great. That's, that's good to know. Um, if I, for some reason, can't get my hands on any of these devices, are there any signs I can look for, you know, um, to know that, for example, that I'm in ketosis? Yeah, a lot of people notice just physiological changes. All of a sudden, their brain is really clear. They have this big energy store that they hadn't really had before. Like, I haven't eaten all day, and I want to, like, clean all the closets, and I want to, like, do all these crazy things, and you're like, what is going on with this? And so a lot of times you just notice you know, your body feels amazing. You, you feel mentally clear. You have great creativity. You have all this drive and motivation to get all these things done. You maybe have less joint pain or, you know, infl inflammation signs or feelings. And so a lot of times, especially once you've kind of gotten used to it and you've maybe been testing for a while and you know, like, okay, I'm in ketosis. How am I feeling? What's different? you know, if, as you learn through this process, then later you can go, oh, I know I'm in ketosis because I can feel it. I can see it. I can like, whatever. Then, you know, for sure that that's what you're pointing to. Um, because you'll know from objective testing to symptoms, you'll know what's changed. So that's still the best way is to gather that data first, um, and really pinpoint that back to how am I feeling? What's different, good or bad, you know, keep track of all of those things. And then later when you're not using the tool anymore, you'll know based on how you feel. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, oh my gosh, all I can say is, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrea, for all of this incredible information. You're just a fountain of knowledge on these topics and you've given us a lot to think about. And, um, and it's very inspiring to hear, um, about all of these different, you know, ways that we can test and things we can find out by, by looking at these numbers. Um, so where can people find you to learn more about what you do and to work with you? Yeah. My website is healthylifewithandrea.com. And from there you can learn about all the things I do. And you can also book a free 45 minute consultation with me. If you'd like to chat more about your situation specifically, I can give you a feel for, you know, what I might be able to offer, or if it's not a good fit, I can help point you towards someone else that is the right fit for you. Okay, cool. So you said healthylifewithandrea.com. Yes. yes. Okay, cool. So of course I'm going to put links in the description below. So you guys can check that out. Um, and any last words of wisdom, Andrea, before we sign off? You know, I'll just say that if you are dealing with any kind of health situation that you don't like, whether it's the ADHD, whether it's type two diabetes, whether it's just low energy, whatever it is, if you're not getting the answers that you're looking for, keep fighting, keep asking, keep pushing, keep researching, talk to lots of people, read all the resources, do all the things until you find the answers. Every condition can at least be improved upon, if not completely eliminated. So keep fighting, be your own best advocate. I love it. I love it. It's sage advice. Yeah. Especially in 2023, we have to be our own advocates. It's true. We do. <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Andrea. It's been so fun talking to you and so informative and um, everybody check out Andrea's website and, um, and that's it for today. Thanks guys. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.